0: Emergency Medical Minute presents Mental Health Monthly. Substance induced psychosis, the agitated geriatric patient, manic episodes, paramedics, nurses, mid-level providers, and physicians in the ED all regularly have to manage patients with psychiatric conditions, often with limited training and resources. In this series, psychiatric experts keep it real, raw, and relevant about what you need to know to successfully care for these patients in an emergency setting.
1: Hello, welcome to Emergency Medical Minute. This is our spinoff series, Mental Health Monthly, and I'm Dr. Travis Barlock. In uh, the last episode, Dr. Andrew White and I discussed the initial approach to the psychotic patient in the emergency department. In this episode, we're gonna discuss mental health holds, psychiatric placement, pharmacologic versus non-pharmacologic treatments, and outpatient care of psychotic patients. hope you enjoy. Now we've, in this camp now of, uh, the patient's been medically cleared, now what and and so one thing that I've I've thought about and I want to just get your thoughts on is who are the patients that we need to recognize as being a threat to themselves or others and will need to be placed on a mental health hold because beforehand you could kind of say that this patient might need to be on a medical hold they they're, they have psychosis and are not medically cleared yet and so. If we're thinking that this is truly psychiatric in nature, primarily, who are the patients that you think meet criteria to truly be on, you know, an M one hold?
0: Oh, that's a fun one. <laughs> that is a fun one. I was just hoping we could put them on a medical hold, just <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> the whole time. No, no, and, and this is a great question, right? Because I think anyone in our lines of work grapples with this question so maybe for anyone that doesn't know when we talk about m1 holds here in colorado these are our our equivalent of a you know a psychiatric certification for um 72 hours i you know i'd like to approach holds on a case-by-case basis because frankly anything else leads to basically more of just a you know kind of cya like we're just going to put everyone on a hold. And that works until you try to send them somewhere for treatment. And then, you know, there's just no beds anywhere. So, I think if you're going to do a hold, you, you need to be willing to have a conversation with a person to, to really talk about what their, their current safety risk is. When I look at 2765, the legislation around our ability to put on these holds, it talks about there needing to be, a, you know, I think A is like this is mental health etiology. So we're at that point, I think, as as you said, the uh, the only reason I I like to lean into that is because sometimes folks will have a hold for all sorts of reasons. The next important word that I look at is this imminent idea, right? So it's not just that you're a danger to yourself or a danger to others, but this is an imminent thing. When I do that math in my head, I mean the next 24 hours. So that's the that's the the metric that I use to to really engage in a conversation with someone about what their current concerns are. Because usually, as as you can imagine, someone coming to me to see if they need to have a hold on them has probably said something that scared someone else to the point that they thought like, oh, you need. It's my job, but it's like, oh, you need to go see a psychiatrist. You need to go like, like something's going on in your head. And I think the less you treat someone who's going through maybe the, the worst day that they've had in a while, like they're losing it, I think you start to evaluate, you know, I kind of break things down into what are their chronic risk factors for suicide risk and what are their immediate things. So, chronically, right, it's all the stuff we learn in med school, the like old, lonely, white dude who's got guns and wife died or something, right, like... And he drinks alcohol, right? Makes it even more high risk. Um, But all of those things that have kind of been there, not just in the last 24 hours, but the months leading up to it. So if you can convince yourself that whatever risks have existed are not dramatically changed in the last 24 hours, there's not some crisis going on. This person didn't prepare um, by writing letters that they're going to kill themselves or have really concerning behavior, then I think the only other thing that I do is is I look at collateral information and try to make sure that what you're hearing from the patient is corroborated by people around this person. So you kind of do that with danger to self, you do it with any concerns about other folks, like if they've been saying, oh, I'm going to kill someone. Um, I do think it's an important you know, point to note that we do have a responsibility to let folks know, you know, the, the um, duty to warn if that comes up. And then Colorado has a very interesting little segment of our mental health holds around grave disability, which, I mean, do you get into that at all? Do you like put holds on for... I
1: mean, yeah, that is, I think, harder to summarize really easily, but it, it seems like it's kind of a subjective assessment. It's, you know, like... It's like a catch-all. It's yeah. like if the other two things don't apply, but I still am worried about you. Right. Um, It's hard. I think you, you just need to be able to articulate that, you know, like you need to be able to explain why you really think that this patient is gravely disabled from their condition, even if, you know, they're not, uh, I think the, you know, the question that we ask to, see should we put this patient on a hold is are they suicidal or are they homicidal like that's almost like the question but then from there it's it's it is as you say there are these other aspects to it and for better or for worse i mean it seems like the the spirit of it is well intended you know if a patient is gravely disabled from their psychiatric condition it you know they probably shouldn't go back out into the world until they've been fully evaluated and and treated. But yeah, I think that 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 term, gravely disabled, was gonna mean different things to different providers and it kind of harkens back to, honestly, what you kind of said at the very beginning of this, which is like your gut, you know? It's like, there's just something telling you that this patient is, it's worrisome. And because, yeah, and then but then you have to, I think, go beyond that and say, how is this person gonna actually Function in the world? Can they take care of themselves? Are they able to go to the doctor's office? Are they mm-hmm. able to manage their activities of daily living? Um, and I think if you can medically reason that they can't um, because of their condition, then then you you're probably in that camp where uh, they probably should be on an M1 hold.
0: Yeah, in, in the way I look at it too, right? Is is where we I mean, took about this m1 hold it it takes away someone's rights and their their freedoms right so I, I don't think we should do it just kind of willy-nilly but but at the same time i think we do that because we're setting people up with treatment mm-hmm. right like it's not just like oh we're giving you this m1 hold and then you're like you're in time yeah, out for yeah. 72 hours right. and then we're going to certify you for another 90 days and and all the things that you know people talk about but but what i think is Important, and this is kind of your point too, right? So, in this evaluation process, if someone's medically cleared with their psychosis, and, and they come to us, and maybe they're hearing voices, or they they feel like they're being told by voices that they're going to harm themselves, right? Like all of those things become sort of the the new focus, which is like, how do we both decide what's the the best way to to treat this? Because you know, psychosis in the the general experience that i've had in the emergency setting for psychiatry can be folks crashing from substances mm-hmm. folks from a mood with psychosis picture so people and think like mania or like major depression with psychosis um or more of like a primary psychotic like schizophrenia schizoaffective thing but all of those aspects as we're looking towards our overall approach right it's, it's Like, let's treat it. Like, let's treat this now. A lot of the folks who come in through the emergency services in a psychotic state will probably leave within 24 hours feeling better, like having cleared. What's hard is someone who comes in and looks gravely disabled because of their psychosis and unable to even, like, reason what's going on if given some, like, TLC and some Zyprexa. Can feel pretty good the next morning.
1: Well, let's now use that to talk about, I guess, what really does happen. You know, after one of these patients gets placed. So, a patient we identify has no medical etiology for their psychosis. Let's say they do require an M one hold, and they require placement to inpatient psych. So, what then happens next?
0: Yeah, so it's a you know, choose your own adventure, right? <laughs> like the, the patient really gets to pick how the next um, three to five days plays out. Um, traditionally speaking, upon being evaluated and, and seen as psychotic by a couple of providers, there'll be an antipsychotic started. You know, usually folks go towards some of the second-generation antipsychotics, depending on what a patient's history is and and their risk factors. But if they don't have any metabolic risks and um, any concerns there, you know, someone's probably going to get started on a fair amount of Zyprexa. We like to use that. Preferentially, because there's a, a Zytus form of it, which is like an orally disintegrating tablet. So if you have someone whose compliance might be a little questionable, you can you know just give them a little dissolvable pill. They don't even have to think about swallowing it.
1: What's the uh, what are the doses that you're using?
0: It, it depends on how aggressive I'm feeling that day, and what I'm seeing. But I would say anywhere between two and a half to f- to five at a given dose. Like that would be my starter dose
1: this is all odt mm-hmm. okay
0: yeah so this is presuming you're insinuating right that someone's taking the meds and mm-hmm. agreeing i think that is definitely something that some people do
1: what if you have the other case where it's yeah. someone is <laughs> yeah. less agreeable
0: yeah well, you know a little hot tamale comes up to the unit those folks generally if they're not posing a harm to the like the milieu in the environment you don't have to be medicated when you're psychotic. There are many people right now in this world walking around psychotic, not causing any issues. But typically, just given the way things work out, issues happen and folks will probably end up getting medicated against their will, which is just kind of, you know, like being restrained and given whatever medication that the on-call doc decides that day. And that's a culture thing. I think like where I practice, it's usually a doll maybe some benadryl or ativan some people do all three there's no evidence that shows adding all of it at once does any better than just like five of Haldol and two of ativan okay but that's kind of my go-to because nurses can draw them up put them in the same syringe and it's an, it's an easier practical thing to ask someone to do in the heat of the moment Okay. Yeah. So, those are folks, you know, once that happens, technically, a process called emergency medications are started. So, if someone's getting medications against their will, every 24 hours, you have to, like, certify or write a note of why you think this person needs these medications against their will. Yeah. And so, those are continued if they're needed. If people... Say, you know, like, I think a type of people that we haven't explained up at this point would be, like, psychotic people who just sit in a chair and chill, but, like, are not eating or drinking or, you know, like, not taking care of themselves. It's almost
1: like the extreme negative symptoms,
0: like, just to the max. Yeah, you can't wait till old... Uncle Joe, who's sitting there in the the chair, like pops off because he's never going to pop off. So uh, those folks end up after the end of their 72-hour hold getting a certification applied for. And so the treatment team will write a letter to the courts and they say, we want this person to be here for 90 days. And during that time, we want involuntary medications.
1: I I think that's also a good example of like the grave disability yeah, You know, that might not be the person who is overtly stating suicidality, homicidality, or um, or anything like that. But clearly, it's a patient who is gravely yeah. disabled.
0: In fact, they'll say, I'm not a danger to myself or others. Right,
1: right. <laughs> like, like, oh, you know the game. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably true.
0: <laughs> yeah, like, I, I respect that.
1: Yeah, right. Touche. But, but they are clearly, but they are a danger to themselves. But it's just... Uh, not in the same way that
0: we usually think of it yeah and and i think that's that like hits the biggest point of of all of this right like where do they go from the ed to to the inpatient or even to the outpatient side is when we think about psychosis from a mental health side it's it's really like we got to save this brain like Mm -hmm. every episode of psychosis is burning away that beautiful brain that you have And, and i think folks if we look at like what works best after this, you know, going into the inpatient unit, getting started on some meds, you know, there's a couple of key points, right? Like one is like, let's try to get you started on a med that has a long-acting injectable. So a lot of these folks, like we try to get you on an Abilify or we try to get you on a, risper, like a Risperidone because we can then give you a 30-day shot of that. That will help. And the more aggressive we treat the psychosis and the sooner, the better people do.
1: What about non-pharmacologic treatment? I mean, we've been talking a lot about, you know, antipsychotics and whatnot, but I would imagine that it's uh, an adjunct to... Other things, like, I mean, what's the role of family, of cognitive behavioral therapy, now and that, that other kinds of things, I guess. Non-farm. Yeah, the hippy-dippy
0: stuff. <laughs> you you optimist. Yeah, I don't know. What, like, I, oh, what am I even thinking? What, what if we involve the families with these people? No, yeah. yeah. Mental illness is a, is a family thing. Serious mental illness, if, if we can differentiate those, like a schizophrenia or these primary psychotic stuff, it, it does. It affects everyone around these individuals mainly because you know the name of the game for for a lot of these folks is it, it really is if, if we're trying to save their brain I think the parallel to that and the day-to-day functioning is like we just we're really trying to preserve the things you're doing at this point mm-hmm. understanding that in that that lens that disease model that this is a chronic progressive thing so folks do need PTOt support they need family like guidance uh one of the great organizations uh, around the u.s is, is nami it's like the national alliance of mental illness they provide like family to family groups and resources for honestly um the things that if if you're not raising a kid with schizophrenia like no one else is really gonna understand what what you're going through but the social supports are huge in the, the psychotherapy realm one of my favorite psychotherapists, uh, Harry Stack Sullivan, he he has done some therapy in the past with folks with psychosis, and it's it interesting to, to read his, his takes on it. I don't know if it ever got to a point where I would say, like, I recommend it for folks. Intellectually, I think it's curious, but, like, I mean even us talking about psychosis as like outsiders who are not psychotic at this moment, like it's, it's kind of voyeuristic, right? Yeah. Like doing therapy with someone who may not understand exactly what's going on may not actually benefit them as much as you think. So there's not a lot of work that shows anything in particular um, for therapy is, is where you should put your money. But if you get someone even in CBT or even like basic supportive therapy, that relationship is huge. Yeah. And psychosis gets better. And the way I look at it is they like keep it together until, you know, a a med student like you or me asks them a question about that one little thing that, like, Mm -hmm. they're willing to uh, unravel over.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I, I just imagine that in the bigger picture of, you know, helping one of these patients really just get through the day and get through their life is that the the medications are going to be a huge role but really it's you know having i just imagine that it really must be having something to like anchor you know reality and too and some stability in in their life and that's why you know i wondered how big of a how big of a role is it with family and you know, social support and, you know, things like like having a job and having just the routine and regularity and and just, you know, and having a psychiatrist that they can go to, you know, regularly, just that I I would imagine that that would be huge.
0: Yeah. And, And the only way I would spin it back to you is I think the things you describe, if all of us did them, are all of our mental health? It'd yeah, like, it's, it's just more it's of a like, general like, thing like, yeah, about yeah, like, <laughs> like if we like got some rest, <laughs> we had a better diet, right. and exercise, and our our job paid us what we deserve. <laughs> <laughs> but but to your point, right? I think that the way I look at it is, is is sort of derived from this idea in sociology about like positive deviance. Like, yeah, we're all given the same environment, but like what makes those among us who do well or thrive different? Yeah, I mean, there are folks with schizophrenia who are musicians, they're physicians, like people can have a primary psychotic disorder and maintain life. I think the reality is you have to be intentional about it, like you're saying, Mm -hmm. right? Like you have to like, yeah, oh, you're scared and and don't trust people and your psychosis is rooted in paranoia. Okay, let's get you a job. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do it.
1: Yeah, right, right. Gosh, it must be... (laughs) daunting, but also like it's, it is kind of Mm -hmm. what's needed. Maybe we can touch briefly on, I guess, like what outpatient care and how you approach psychosis in the outpatient setting, what that's kind of like, and we can probably, you know, wrap this up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, the big points there that I would share with folks is, you know, psychosis is not like a death sentence. A lot of folks who will have, oh, and put it this way, right? Like one of the stats that I always use with some of the kiddos that I work with, um, they're like teenagers. It's around auditory hallucinations. It was like this study in, I think it was New Zealand, and they found that like about 25% of folks heard voices. They just heard voices at, at some point on a, a year-long sample. And so sometimes I think... Just as we're tasked with being like reality testers for folks with psychosis, we also can be a, a voice of reason to say, like, "Yeah, you you had some psychoticy stuff going on." But even like the language of like psychosis, you know, it implies a psycho. Like, it, it sort of has a lot of stigma. Yeah. That my work as an outpatient doc becomes to, to like contextualize what folks went through, because many people who have, you know, a brief psychotic episode, they're not gonna go on to schizophrenia like something happened in their lives this 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 mental breakdown of sorts occurs and so i like to adapt whatever language best makes sense for for their history try to give them diagnostic clarity because then the name of the game becomes how do we prevent you know how do do we anticipate what's going to happen what's the prognosis for this Mm Mm-hmm you've got someone who's withdrawing from school, they've got positive symptoms of schizophrenia and you're there like month after month getting worse, like, yeah, get aggressive, mm-hmm. get really aggressive and, and then implement some of those supports that you mentioned, right? Like we got to build up support around this, this individual. For some of the older folks and people I work with, once they've had, you know, established schizophrenia and, and working through, I think it becomes a constant battle of avoiding side effects from medications. Sure. You know, these antipsychotics have all the extra pyramidal stuff that, that we learn about and the metabolic stuff. And they're just, you know, they're, they're pretty sedating meds, yeah. they're really anticholinergic, like they kind of knock you out. And so, when folks talk, talk to me about feeling like a zombie on certain meds, these are the ones that I worry about because, again, outpatient psychosis treatment is a marathon, and you just try to keep up and keep the pace of the person you're working with. Understanding that, like, so the one of the best studies we have in in schizophrenia is this this thing called the Katie trial. It was back in the early 2000s, and they had all these folks, and they're, they're really looking at like atypical versus typical antipsychotics like which is tolerated better who does better on these but the the big take-home at the end of the like the year or so of treatment that they were in is that only about 25 percent of people were on those medications still
1: oh really yeah. okay
0: and so it really wasn't like a there wasn't a big difference between the two you know we have a lot of our evidence about like olanzapine causing more weight gain because of that study but you can't you know don't miss the big picture yeah you know, like splitting hairs about meds may uh, be less important than engaging folks who yeah, by the very nature, I right, we've talked about it all day, are are tough to engage with. they mm-hmm. They're not in the reality that we're in, but I think we can meet folks where they are or we can continue to isolate them and like be like, "Oh, this is what happens when people get psychotic." It's like, yeah, that's like psychosis is the limits of what brains do. Wow.
1: Well, wow. I think that right there, that's a, a great spot to, to end it. You've reached uh, the limit of our brains. I think, I, think yeah. <laughs> you know, I thought this was a really interesting yeah. conversation. I hope that listeners might have a little bit more comfort with the topic and have a little bit of a diagnostic approach to it and have a little bit more also insight on kind of what happens after patients, um, you know, leave the emergency department and are hospitalized and are then are back out in the world. Dr. Andrew White, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast.
0: Dr. Travis Barlock. It's a pleasure. Yeah. All right. Thanks, <laughs> thanks man. for having me. Appreciate it.